This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was homecrafted and recorded on January the 4th and 5th, 2022. Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. In our first segment this week, we are going to be talking about an upcoming election that very few of us will actually be voting in, but will absolutely impact all Austinites. Joining me to make sense of that is Austin Chronicle staff writer Austin Sanders. Hello, Austin. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So it's election time again. It's always election time. Never ends. Right. So we're talking about the District 4 special election. Can you tell our listeners why there's a special election happening? Yeah. So Brett Kassar, who has represented Northeast Austin District 4 on the city council since the districts were created in 2014, he's made the decision to step down from that seat and make a run for Congress to represent the district that Lloyd Doggett did represent, he's moving to a newly created congressional district to run for that one. But Kassar's decision has necessitated this January special election, January 25th to be exact, which is going to be kind of like a prelude to the big elections, the primaries, which are happening in March. So we're really kind of kickstarting the 2022 election cycle here. And so the winner of this special election will serve the rest of Kassar's term, which will expire at the end of 2024. Kassar was reelected handily in 2020. And so, yeah, there have been seven candidates who have filed for this down-ballot race in an off-year election that will only be voted on by the people living in District 4, as you kind of alluded to. So I imagine there are a lot of people out there who aren't really sure what district they live in. Where is District 4 located? Yeah, so it's like most of Northeast Austin. I think it's probably all east of 35 from about, I think the southern portion is like the 22-22 area up through Runberg and Lamar, that part of the city. Gotcha. You can look up on the city's website, your address to see if you are in the district and if you're eligible to vote in this election, because early voting starts next week. That's right. And that's just general good advice. If you don't know what district you live in, you should look it up. Yeah. And it's changing, right? This is kind of a facet of this story, right? We're going to have new council district maps as part of redistricting following the census. And in D4 is getting thousands of new voters who are actually not going to be able to vote in this election, this special election, because it's based on the old map, but will be represented by this new council member. So it's kind of an interesting, unprecedented situation in that way. Well, and also sort of the demographics of a district often determine what the most important issues are there. And those issues are what's being discussed in this campaign. So as you said, there are seven candidates. Why don't you run through them? Let us know who they are. And also, you know, we'll get into what those issues in particular are really impacting D4 voters. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll run through the seven and then we can kind of talk about some of the standouts. Jose Chito Vela, 
I think he was the first candidate to announce a run. He had previously teased running for this seat when Kassar was considering stepping down in 2020 to run for a state Senate seat. He chose not to do that. But Vela threw his name out there and now is officially running. He's an immigration and criminal defense attorney. He served on the city's planning commission and in 2018 was a candidate for the Texas House. He barely lost that race in the primary to Representative Cheryl Cole, who is still representing that district. And then Monica Guzman is running. She's a local policy advocate with a nonprofit called Go Austin, Vamos Austin. She was a member of the city's Reimagining Public Safety Task Force. This was kind of the group of volunteers aimed with guiding how the city could reduce spending on policing and invest in other social services and other public safety alternatives. She also ran in the first D4 race in 2014. She lost, of course, to Kassar in that race. Then we have Melinda Shira, a marketing analyst who has been you know, involved in District 4 neighborhood politics for a number of years, served as president of the North Austin Civic Association one of the neighborhood groups in the district. Jade Lovera, she's pretty new to local politics, has not been very active until this year when a rezoning case in her neighborhood kind of motivated her to kind of get involved in this process. And she's really been motivated by what she's experienced and learned through that process. Isa Bunto Zarafis is running. They are a teacher in Austin Public Schools, an artist who's, you know, been involved in Austin Mutual Aid, you know, the volunteer organizations that help provide resources and support to lower income people in the city. And then we have Ramses Setapinier. He was a security employee at City Hall who ran against Kassar in 2020, only amassed about 8% of the vote. So he's not very active on the campaign trail, kind of an interesting candidate. And then finally, we have Amanda Rios, also a newcomer to city politics, who has really been motivated to run by the city council's decision to decriminalize homelessness in 2019. The effect that that decision had on her neighborhood when some, you know, unhoused people began camping nearby. So that's the seven candidates. So, yeah, a long list. It is a long list. I gather that there are a few who have emerged as the strongest in the field, or at least the ones who are having the most impact in terms of donations, in terms of endorsements. And one of these, only one of these has gotten Kassar's endorsement. Yeah, that's Vela, right. And he's the clear front runner, no doubt in part because of that Kassar endorsement, which came as soon as candidate filing closed, you know, once the race was set. Vela's also the clear front runner in terms of fundraising. He's raised tens of thousands of more dollars than any of the other candidates. Rios is kind of the second there in terms of fundraising. Vela is also just well known among other local elected officials in the community. He's been active in the Windsor Park neighborhood politics where he lives in the district. So he's a well-known name, raising a lot of money has gotten, you know, key endorsements from local electeds at the state house including Cheryl Cole who we mentioned and Greg Kassar. So, he's kind of the favorite for now, 
But Guzman, Monica, is, you know, well-positioned as well, I would say. She's pretty well-known among neighborhood preservationists, right? Whereas Vela is more of an urbanist in the vein of Kassar, someone who more reflexively supports denser housing, more dense development. Guzman really comes to that land use debate from the opposite end of the spectrum. She's very active at City Hall, has, you know, testified against some upzonings, some zoning cases that she thinks would kind of, you know, cause gentrification, harm low-income renters. And that's really something that she's been passionate about and really that she specializes in in her nonprofit advocacy at GAVA. So judging by campaign finance reports, you know, where we can see who is contributing to these candidates, we see that a lot of the familiar names from the neighborhood preservationist politics have contributed to her campaign. She's really being endorsed by those groups. So I think those two names are some of the more likely that would make it to a runoff, which again, with seven candidates, kind of an off year, likely to be a low turnout election. If no one makes it, none of the candidates make above 50% of the vote, this will go to a runoff likely in February between the first and second place finishers, right? The two candidates with the highest number of votes will move on to a runoff. So those two, I would say, are probably the strongest contenders. Although, again, with such like an off-year election, such a high number of candidates, relatively low information election, like a city council special election would be, any one of these candidates could advance, you know. So, you know, you mentioned the Greg Kassar. He's been the only council member from District 4 since the 10-1 formation started. He's been an incredibly polarizing figure, an incredibly popular figure, too. I'm curious, sort of, how you think of his legacy, what kind of impact he had on the city, and if any of these candidates seem to be, I don't know, ready to pick up the same mantle. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've been thinking about the Kassar legacy and how each candidate are responding to it. And I asked each of them as I interviewed them and, you know, some downplayed that they were responding to Kassar's legacy or his achievements on council, his policies. But when you look at their policy positions, Rios, Amanda Rios, for example, she's kind of a one issue voter on the public camping ordinance that Kassar championed, right? That ordinance change in 2019 that made it easier or legal for people to camp in more public spaces, that wouldn't have happened without Kassar, right? It's one of his signature achievements. Kassar really championed the public camping, lifting restrictions there, which you know not only motivated Save Austin Now, this right-wing group, to get a successful ballot initiative, a petition initiative on the ballot and passed. But it has motivated Amanda Rios to run for this seat. You know, she's explicit in her campaign materials that she's running for the seat because of that decision and because of that vote. Um, uh, Likewise, the 2020 budget that council voted, kind of known as the reimagining public safety budget, the one that kind of cuts police funding, reallocated it to some other departments. Kassar was a champion as well, not the only one on council, but one of the leading voices on council advocating for that budget. And that's certainly another issue that every candidate is responding to. And it's one of the ways that the candidates are kind of 
distancing themselves from Kassar. I wouldn't say that any of them are as much of an advocate in the kind of activist way that Kassar has been in reducing police spending. Even Vela would be the closest continuation of Kassar's legacy if elected. You know, told me in an interview that he would want to see more officers kind of in high crime areas in District 4. You know, he's talking to a lot of neighborhood groups and other community stakeholders who are concerned about some hotspot areas in the district. And of course, you know, as a defense attorney, he has seen the damage that jail and prison time can have on people and families. So he is certainly aware of that and wants to see all the other alternatives to policing. But the language that all of the candidates use to kind of, you know, clarify that they support law enforcement, even if they may want to kind of cede some of their power to other services, is a big difference from the way that Kassar has kind of talked about this issue. You know, we're about out of time, but I do want to ask, Kassar has been pretty much a convenient guy to point to for his detractors, anti-progressive forces to point to and say, well, that guy's the devil. With him gone from city council, who do you think becomes the punching bag? Yeah, that's a really good question. Probably Natasha Harper-Madison, right? Because she shares a lot of the same policy positions as Kazar, but also because she's a Black woman, right? The only and the only Black person on council, right? This is, I think, a big part of it. She deals with a lot of explicit and implicit racism, which is really unfair, kind of a part of her role as a public servant here. She already gets a lot of that kind of hate, but you're right, without Kassar to absorb other parts of it, it's probably going to ramp up for her in her office. Well, let's just hope that alternately we're entering a new era of Austin politics where everyone is polite and kind and we all assume the best of each other. How about that? Yeah, uh, good wish. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your thoughts, your analysis. And if our listeners want to hear more about the D4 race, They can find that in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle, a big feature written by Austin Sanders. Thanks, Austin. Sure. Thanks for having me on. We're going to take a quick break. And then my colleague Richard Whitaker is going to take the wheel for the second half of the program. Don't go anywhere. Hi there, I'm Richard Whitaker. I'm the Culture Desk Editor at the Austin Chronicle, and it's my great pleasure to be joined today by Tom Cheridale. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely our pleasure. And in this week's issue, you've written, Boris, about one of Austin's big secret companies, which is Zynga, who you may not have heard of, but Tom, why would people know Zynga? I feel like if you were active on social media during a certain period, about a decade ago, you would know them as a Farmville company. The company and game that ate so many hours. 
Yeah, there was even a South Park episode about it. For a little while, they were going through CEOs like crazy. But what a lot of people didn't know is that Zynga landed in Austin about a decade ago. And that's really when they started to kind of mature into a company that did more than just Farmville, but lots of games that you could amuse yourself and keep up with friends while sitting in line at grocery stores or COVID testing centers or basically any situation that seemed like you didn't want to be in and had to wait, Zynga was there for you. And for me, at least, those mobile games were especially important during that first like six-month stretch. What, which is your favorite? <laughs> what was your favorite time suck when it came I mean, to uh, app gaming? I would go pretty ham on Words with Friends to the point where I would have to delete it for long months on end. So I would actually do my actual work instead of trying to think up words for a game, you know, like words that I owe folks like yourself, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Words which you provide in great depth for us this week. So, I mean, when you talk to Zynga, what were you hearing from them about, you know, obviously the last year, a lot of people have relied on games to get them through. What did they tell you about what the year's been like for them? Well, I talked to Jeff Hickman, who is the Senior Vice President of Natural Motion Studio. That's one of many Zynga studios that they own. It's here in town. I think it's one of two. And, you know, they said that the pandemic kind of was a perfect use case for the company's vision, which is to make games social and, in my mind, fun. Because it's almost like gaming has diverged where you've got the big giant games that you hear about three years in advance and blow tons of money on, wait for downloadable content. And then you've got the games that keep you busy that are actually fun that you connect with your friends on. And with Zynga and this opportunity that they have, they saw a huge increase, unsurprisingly, while everybody had nothing to do and lots of time to waste. And you know they kind of feel like they found their purpose. People need a distraction, and, and I agree with them. Are there, obviously, you know, you talked about Farmville. They had at least Farmville 3 in the middle of all this, which just proves there's this incredible durability to games like that. And to, you know, also they've got a new Star Wars game, Star Wars Hunters, coming out. So, you know, it, it feels like with these kind of games, it's not just the ability to reach out that's been successful over the last year and maintain some sense of community, but also there's a lot of familiarity that people have really been looking for. I think they want that. They're really excited about the Star Wars games. A lot of the developers there came from BioWare and worked on the Star Wars Build Republic MMO, which I was a huge fan of. Loved that. And I see the imagery even today in things like The Mandalorian. So that's exciting that we have that happening in town, but they want to take that social element and mesh it with where people actually are. So if people are on a mobile device, which most of us are, that's where they want to Constantly. be. Uh, with Star Wars, this is actually the first time that they're going to be porting a game to a console. So this will be on Nintendo Switch. And I don't have a Switch, mostly because consoles and I have a weird relationship where they suck up all of my time and I do nothing else. But this might actually push me over to buy it and get it. And they want to bring all of their games to various platforms. But just to give you kind of a scope, they're also producing like a game for TikTok. I'm not an avid TikTok user, but I don't even understand how that works. It's cool. TikTok is one of those things that baffles me. 
I'm still of the Twitter generation, but you know, clearly they're seeing the opportunities in there. But I mean, you talked about you know how many people have come from Bioware to work on their new Star Wars game. I think it's not talked about how much Austin has a long history of both indie game development, but also large studios as well. And, and Zynga really seems to fit into that. You know, Bioware was here for years and, and produced a lot of big, they were AAA titles. So, you know, I don't think people see Austin as a game development town, but it really is. Yeah. And I think it kind of meshes nicely with everything else that we've had. I started to see, and in large part to you, Richard, uh, and the Chronicle, a lot of fresh attention being placed on our animation roots. And there's so much animation here. There's so much motion graphics. There's so much immersive media that does get talked about that kind of the bare bones of it is games. Everybody likes games. Everybody wants to play games. And I almost feel like it's kind of stitched into Austin's DNA, but always kind of has been in the background. Well, and Mighty Coconut too, another of the local developers you know, and they do a lot of animation work for films. They're actually, their original short became the Will Smith film Spies in Disguise. So, but now they've gone in heavily into gaming as well and VR gaming, and they've got Walkabout Mini Golf, which is on the Oculus Rift and Steam VR. And that's been a huge smash for them as well. So, you know, we are a gaming and tech town, although we do have this very complicated relationship with that in Austin. And I think people, see Austin as a town that's being taken over by the tech scene. But I always point out, well, the domain was an IBM campus. So Big Blue was here in the 50s. But, I th- but I think Richard, of- people love the domain so much. <laughs> but there has been a long discussion about you know, where we are in relation to the tech scene. So, I mean, you know, that's something that you follow. During the pandemic, we've heard a lot about companies moving to Austin about expansion, about what that means. But you know, from your point of view, as somebody who's been looking at tech for years, you know, what are you seeing that's changed in the last couple of years? So to give a little bit of background, I've been here about as long as Zynga has. I moved here in 2011. I was working for a company called VentureBeat, and I was covering a lot of startups and fresh tech companies that wanted a campus here, kind of a satellite. And kind of a precursor. And I was the biggest cheerleader of move to Austin, move to Austin. And it's almost like everyone around here who saw the value were looking at these things and they all got on the same script. And what we're seeing now is everyone listened and now everybody's got opinions on that, which, which I think is, is funny. But it's interesting to me because I think what people are seeing now is the migration, but what we're not actually seeing just yet is... What happens when you put all of these technologists and developers and creatives in the same space and give them idle free time to meet and collaborate and get some really cool things? And Austin has a lot of cool things itself. And I think in the next five years, we're all going to be surprised. Like, oh, wait, that was produced out of Austin? Not to cheerlead Elon Musk, but you know he's got a lot of cool projects off the side that he wants to do, semi-related to Tesla. The in-dash entertainment system inside of the Tesla vehicles. I don't know exactly how much and what they're doing, but I know that they were doing some game development there, exploring it. Yeah, but they've had to back away from that to a certain degree because the feds have gone, yeah, not a good idea to have a screen there that drivers can (laughs) actually play with while they're driving. So Tesla's now actually turning that off. So 
it's always one of those things where you're kind of just because you can should you well and they may be turning it off for their vehicles but you know we are looking at the future in the next 10 years, if all of the plans that have been laid and the money goes where it's supposed to, we should have a electric car charging stations across the country and really normalizing that process. But the one thing is if you're going to make a cross-country tour, or maybe you've just been all over town and realize how low you are on juice, you're going to have to plug in somewhere and you're going to have some idle time. So even if we're not seeing these games right now, I suspect they're still exploring. Oh, yeah. I think they already turned them off while the car's actually in motion. <laughs> no, it probably makes the, sense. Yeah. The screen time is not reducing at all. But I think, you know, there's also, it used to be that people were, people would say, oh, don't Dallas my Austin or don't Houston my Austin. And I think now we're hearing this mantra of don't San Francisco my Austin, which I think, you know, talking to people in San Francisco, they're sending salutary warnings. Well, this is what happened to us and we got priced out. And we're already seeing... Part of it is driven by people from California who can, you know, pay cash and over the odds for housing. And, you know, there's going to be an interesting question, I think, of whether we see the new tech scene, it's integrated into Austin or it's just kind of airdropped on top, what the impact is there. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that shakes out. I'm more curious to see if people stick around after five years, because as you know, Richard, there are many differences between living in the state of New York or the state of California and the state of Texas. Oh, yes. All my roots in Yorkshire. It's a whole different ballgame. Anyway, thank you so much, Tom. It's been a genuine pleasure having you on. I hope to have you on again in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'd also like to thank, in addition to Tom, our other guest today, Austin Sanders, the main host of the show, Kim Jones, our show engineers, Bob Daly and Andrew Solon. And thanks to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. And in a special moment of tribute and thank you to uh, Zynga for working with us this week, uh, we're talking to Tom. Here is the theme from Farmville. 